now have our Bible reading, which Rachel is going to read to us. The reading, the Gospel reading, is taken from Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. And it can be found on page 49 of the New Testament section of the Church Bible. The Rich Man. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked, and he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked to them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll just put my mic back and we'll begin with a prayer, if you would. Just join me. Lord, as we look at the turbulence and uncertainty around us. Help dispel our fear by renewing our allegiance to Jesus, to whom you have granted all authority in heaven and on earth. For your glory we ask it. 
Amen. Well, we come today to the fourth session in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And the title today is Challenging Allegiance. And so we look at the way Jesus challenges allegiance. I needed to look that word up in the Oxford Dictionary. It's defined as the relation or duty of a liege man to his lord. And also the tie or obligation of a subject to his or her monarch, government or country. Hence the oath of allegiance that Chris, my wife, born in Australia took when she became a British citizen here in Jersey a few years ago. Loyalty is also implied, a recognition of the claims which someone has to respect or honour. And there's also a noun that I discovered for the person owing allegiance. It's allegiant. Allegiant, a new word for me. And I suggest that we are all allegiance to something or other, or to someone. The British showed their allegiance to Queen Elizabeth last month. Westminster's procedure permitted loyal members of the Conservative Party to elect a new Prime Minister when the Parliamentary Conservative Party abandoned their allegiance to Boris, their Prime Minister at the time. Some may be regretting that after Liz Truss demonstrated her allegiance to the ideology of low taxes and a smaller state. President Putin, on the other hand, has shown his allegiance to the idea of expanding the Russian motherland by fair means or foul. We are all allegiance. The question is, to whom or to what do we grant our allegiance? And this is where Jesus challenges us today. Just before we look at our reading, let's remind ourselves that Jesus himself demonstrated unswerving allegiance to his mission, the salvation of mankind. And although he was equal with God, he humbled himself, became our servant, and carried his obedience all the way to the cross. He was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he invites us to follow him, to live in radical contrast to those unbelievers around us. And as I was preparing this and thinking of 
those uh, recent examples of allegiance and or lack of it. Um, the example of King David um, came to mind. A man who was not without his faults. And yet, um, in 2 Samuel, um, when he was in real difficulty, um, his own son, Absalom, was rebelling against him and uh, had been proclaimed by most of Israel as king. Um, David was advised to flee Jerusalem. And as he and his retinue did so, he looked at all the people who were going past him, and um, this is from 2 Samuel 15. All his men marched past him, along with the Kerethites and Pelethites. In other words, people who had followed him who were not Israelites, they, they weren't his people. And all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. These were the guys whom he had recruited when he was in Philistine. So they were not Israelites. The king said to Ittai, who was their leader, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your countrymen, and may kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the king lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. What a contrast. That's true loyalty, isn't it? These Gittites from Gath were not Israelites. They had followed David and confirmed there that they would follow him to death if necessary. That's loyalty. So what was it about David that inspired that loyalty? And I suggest that it is because he followed the Lord. There was that something in him that these foreigners could see that inspired them to such loyalty. What a contrast to uh, what we see going on around us today. Anyway, let's uh, look uh, at our reading, which uh, begins with someone who looks like an allegiant because he runs up to Jesus, kneels before him and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we know from Luke's gospel that this man was a ruler of a synagogue and from Matthew's account that he was young. 
Jesus immediately jolts the ruler into considering what good really means, pointing out that only God can properly be described as good. And then he answers the question by listing some of the commandments. And it's interesting, he doesn't follow the order in which we see them in in Exodus. Do not kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness or defraud, and honour your father and mother. The ruler's response is quick and confident. All these I have observed from my youth, he says. Job done then, uh, you might think. And, And we can imagine people today who perhaps believe themselves righteous and worthy of heaven, not having committed any grave sins like King David had. And so like the young ruler, sincerely deeming that they're good enough for heaven, that that they've achieved the grade, as it were, in the divine exam. And yet, it's interesting that the young man himself must have sensed that there was something missing, that he wasn't quite there, because despite his self-styled exemplary life and conduct, he saw that something was missing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have approached Jesus as he did in the first place. Perhaps deep down, he realizes that all his outward behavior, decent and wholesome though it may be, his allegiance to the law of Moses and his fellow Pharisees is ultimately ineffective and indeed irrelevant as a route to eternal life, a dead end, literally. Jesus certainly does, as he looks into the young man's eyes and heart with deep compassion and identifies the problem. One thing you lack, literally one thing makes you come behind, puts you at the back of the queue. Sell everything you've got and give to the poor and come follow me. Jesus hits the nail on the head, perceiving that the ruler loved earthly possessions. He was an allegiant to his wealth. And since his heart was thus pledged to another, there was no room in it for love for anything else. Jesus summarized it in another way in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure, the Greek thesaurus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The result of truly letting Jesus into our lives is a radical inner change, literally a change of heart. And that's what he saw was needed in this case. So the ruler went away sad, literally grieving, because he had 
great wealth. Thus, missing out, in fact, not even considering the great positive Jesus had also mentioned that he would gain treasure in heaven. Not as a reward, of course, because we cannot buy eternal life or earn it in any way, but because freeing himself from his allegiance to wealth would allow him to fix his heart on Jesus instead and be granted salvation and the privilege of following Christ as a disciple. And so, with the loving but challenging words of Jesus echoing in his mind, the ruler departs. And we can only wonder uh, whether that bit of grit, that, that seed, as it were, planted in his soul, produced good fruit eventually in his life. Let's hope so for his sake. Now, alone with his disciples, Jesus says to them, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, which amazed the disciples, some of whom, like Peter, own houses and other assets. To drive home the point, Jesus in verse 24 repeats the warning, but in some texts, with the addition of the words, how hard it is for those trusting in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Although the phrase trusting in riches is not in our translation, the meaning I think is clear because we see that our young ruler did in truth trust in or have allegiance to his riches. And that warning rings down the ages to us in the 21st century. If you're wealthy, it would be wise to challenge any possible allegiance to one's wealth. Jesus certainly does, because as he states in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve both God and mammon. Some translations have um, saying uh, you can't serve both God and money, which is a bit more passive than mammon, because mammon is the correct literal record. And mammon is the Aramaic word for profit and uh, became uh, used as the god, the local god of money. And it has that, that sense of sort of actively seeking wealth all the time, um, of never answering the question, how much is enough? Or actually answering it, well, it, a bit more, a bit more. So there's that um, time and energy and allegiance taken up in seeking ever more wealth. In verse 25, Jesus explains further, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed, literally dumbfounded, and ask the very question which we might be asking ourselves right now, because make no mistake, compared to the vast majority of the world's 
population, everyone sitting here today is wealthy, so that these disciples asked, well, who then can be saved? You know, they were probably thinking, well, some of us are wealthy, so we're out for a start, and the poorer ones knew that if they were honest, they probably secretly longed for wealth, so we're all in trouble. But they make the same error as the young ruler in thinking that they have to do something to earn eternal life. You know, if they're wealthy, give it all away. Or if they're poor, stay poor. Actively stay poor. But Jesus corrects them by elevating their focus from the worldly to the spiritual. Because we're considering eternal life here. And so, from a spiritual perspective, he reminds them that all things are possible with God. And this is the crux of Jesus' challenge to our allegiance. For the rich young ruler, he saw that the disposal of his wealth was necessary. He needed, as it were, a big operation on his heart because his heart needed to be split from his wealth. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't always ask us to give up all our possessions. It's a question of where our heart is. Zacchaeus generously offered recompense to any that he may have swindled during his time as a tax collector. But he wasn't required to give up all he had. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple and rich. And James warned against trusting in riches instead of trusting in God. And of the disciples, Peter had his house in Capernaum and John too, a home where he later was to take Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there were several wealthy women disciples who supported Jesus and the Twelve during their ministry. And I remember Daniel Cousins explaining it so well on one of his early uh, walk missions that I went on. And he was talking about this very subject, about material possessions. And he said, yes, for those who become Christians, it is required in a way that we put all of our possessions, all we own, at the feet of Jesus, at his disposal. But then, in most cases, he gives them back to us and says, there you go, you look after that lot for me. You be my steward of them. So Jesus uses this episode to teach the disciples to reduce any sense of self-reliance and increase their hope and trust in God, transferring any allegiance they may have had in the world and its material benefits to the person of their Lord and Saviour. So with 
their initial fears about eternal life now calmed, Peter, never backward in coming forward, and having heard Jesus mention the reward of treasure in heaven when he met the young ruler, took it upon himself to remind Jesus that the disciples had left everything to follow him. The unspoken point being, well, what's the deal here? You know, what do we get out of it? Reminiscent, in a way, of the ruler's thinking. The more we do, the more we earn, the more God owes us. But Jesus assures Peter that no one who leaves family, possessions, etc., for his sake and the sake of the gospel will fail to obtain a hundredfold reward and life eternal. Blessings beyond compare, which it's totally worth changing allegiance for. And Mark alone, among the gospel writers, adds to this list of blessings the words with persecutions, which one commentator describes as a seal upon the blessings, calls it butter on the bread, by which we are strongly assured that we are God's children. Wow. Um, I don't know about you, but my experience, having come to Christ uh, later, um, almost in the middle uh, of my life, is that when I have felt in God's service, I get more flack. (laughs) And when everything is hunky-dory, I therefore wonder whether I'm on track, if you see my point. Um, So I'm not saying that um, it, it... It is never, and we should never have um, encouragements. We do, of course we do, but um, that's my experience anyway. Um, It's almost as if, um, you know, harking back to to my father-in-law as a a member of the Lancaster bomber teams, you know, you can imagine him when he's actually on coming in on target, the pilot's got him in, and and the bomb aimer's right there, ready to go, you're going to get the flak. You're not going to get it if you're way off target. Anyway, that was my experience. This commentator uh, goes on. Persecutions alone, he says, are able to lift us into the company of the prophets to share their high rewards. Words of comfort that we here in Jersey may not require at the moment, but many of our brothers and sisters being persecuted for their faith in various parts of the world will, I pray, find reassuring. So Jesus challenging our allegiance, and as a final warning, he says that many who are first will be last, and the last first. Bad news there for the big shots, people who because of their status or wealth or work and efforts over many years perhaps, uh, deem themselves first in the kingdom, may wake up one day and realize that they're at the back of the queue 
or maybe uh, not in the kingdom at all. Their focus on their own importance, slowly and perhaps imperceptibly, taking up the room in their hearts that should have been reserved for allegiance to Christ. A sobering reminder to us all, I think, to just check from time to time where our focus lies and, if necessary, restore allegiance to the one person who supremely merits it, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.